Hello and welcome back. I'm Lauren Foster, Content Director with CFA Institute. Today I'm in London at the 72nd Annual Conference and my guest for the next 10 to 15 minutes is Adam Tews. Adam is a professor of history at Columbia University where he directs the European Institute. He's a prolific and well-published scholar and a best-selling author. His most recent book is Crashed, which is a big tome I can hold up and it's crashed how a decade of financial crises changed the world. It's been described as an eye-opening reinterpretation of the 2008 financial crisis and its aftermath, leading to the political shockwaves you are feeling in the world today. Crash recently won the prestigious 2019 Lionel Gilbert Prize. Critics have lavished praise on Crashed. It's been hailed as brilliantly original, required reading, remarkable scholarship, and possibly my favorite, a compelling political horror story. Welcome, Adam. Hi. It's Thank great to me. have you here. So your mission and primary purpose in writing Crashed was to put the transatlantic relationship squarely back at the center of the story. Why? Well, because I think if you think back to the moment of 08 and then what happened afterwards, perhaps even more, is that what we ended up with were two really distinct stories. One was about what happened in the financial crisis of 07, 08, which was a real estate bust, which brought down Wall Street, which was a kind of all-American story, the unraveling of the American dream. It was a story of American malpractice, feral capitalism. And then something very different happened which was all European and was all about public debt and bad Greek politicians and the sovereign debt crisis of the Eurozone and the constitution of Europe between 2010 and 2012. And to me, both those stories were unconvincing because in fact, if you look back, and I think even at the time people were aware of this, it's really in subsequent memory that the memory parts. Okay. In 2008, the crisis was obviously a crisis of the transatlantic banking system spanned between Wall Street and preeminently the city of London, but involving all of Europe's banks with a no exception perhaps of the Spanish and the Italians mm -hmm. in the first round, but German, Benelux, French, mm -hmm. British banking obviously tied up, Swiss banking, Scandinavian banks it turned out, all yeah. extraordinarily fragile, deeply exposed in American markets, key players in subprime mm -hmm. securitization, in fact. Mm -hmm. And then when we move on to the Eurozone crisis, not only is the Eurozone crisis tied up with the weakness of Europe's banks as much as with the weakness of some sovereigns, but also American money market mutual funds have huge amounts of money invested in European bank debt, which means the Obama administration, very much against its own will, plays a very significant role in stabilizing the Eurozone, which neither the Americans want to own because that's the last problem they want to have, or the Europeans want to acknowledge that they were reliant on American support. So I've heard you say that there are really three angles threading through the narrative and that your challenge as a historian obviously was to tell the story of the financial crisis as a transatlantic story with a global dimension. Yeah. But the other two angles are economics, one, and the other social theory and the question of power. Yeah. Can you briefly explain those two? Yes, I mean, what we saw after all in the crisis was not just the bankruptcy of old economic thinking. There's been, to my mind, too much talk about this, zombie economics, the failures of financial economics. 
let's take that for granted. What I think is more interesting is the new types of thinking that emerged. And for me, really, the discovery was the emergence of this school of macro finance, mm -hmm. which financial analysts like CFA members are deeply involved in, mm -hmm. and which for the first time really links together our understanding of major financial balance sheets with macroeconomic events. It's a major breakthrough mm -hmm. in how we understand the logic of financial crisis, which are not driven in the first instance, certainly not 08, by current account imbalances, trade imbalances, in other words, but are driven mm -hmm. by the unraveling of leverage and short-term funding in transnational bank balance sheets. And highlighting this as the core to understanding what was going on is really the, the intellectual mission of the book. Mm -hmm. And the other dimension, which became ever more pressing as the crisis has rumbled on, and we live now in its aftermath, is the politics. I mean, this is inherently a political operation. The whole business, A, the construction of finance per se, relies on the creditworthiness of the state, modes of governance. It's always a distributional issue. When you have a crisis, that's profoundly shaken up. But then, of course, we've opened into an increasingly open-ended conversation about the future of capitalism, the future of finance, future of democracy indeed. And we now have, you know, these amazing phenomena of the emergence of a substantial left wing in the United States and also a right wing. MMT is a subject that's on everyone's minds, this radical theory of monetary expansion. These are things that 12, 15 years ago one could barely have imagined. Mm -hmm. So one of the key figures in Crashed is Tim Geithner, and he's the former US Treasury Secretary who you say is a truly Napoleonic figure. Well, I mean, partly it's, you know, it's a, it's a tall man's conceit. conceit. Tim Geithner is a, a man of short stature, but mm. bristling energy. He's an incredible fireball of, 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 of testosterone and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and dynamic response. And the other more serious matter is that he has an understanding of history, which is that, I think, more of a soldier or a politician than perhaps a, a finance mm -hmm. guy. In the sense, he thinks of crisis and the kind of opportunities and moments that, that those create as essential to the art of governing. There are moments where things get very bad and you need to respond with mechanisms and options which are not necessarily attractive or ones that you would choose, but are essential in that moment. And what struck me, particularly as a European, where we're not normally habituated to think in military terms, is about how obvious it was for America's crisis fighters we are, after all, talking about a society that was deeply embreshed in wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. How natural it was for them to think about what they were doing in military terms. Mm. So they talk about fighting the crisis, you know, they talk about shock and awe, they talk yeah. about the big bazooka, they talk about the Powell Doctrine of crisis mm. fighting. This is language derived from the American military to describe the way in which you lose the substantial, but in the end limited resources of a state like America to actually win a war and mm. win in a crisis situation. Mm. Haunted by Vietnam, mm energizes by the sense the Americans won the, the Cold War, mm. enmeshed still in Iraq and Afghanistan, this was the space they were operating in. Super interesting. So let's bring this to the present day. We're having this conversation in, in London, mm. uh, where there's an extraordinary concentration of power and money, and of course, Brexit. So help connect the dots for us from 08 to Brexit. Well, I think as a historian, it's really very difficult to believe that we're in a situation that we're in. One of the constants in British history, well back to the 18th century, has been the significance of London as the hub of political, yeah. diplomatic and financial power on which the British Empire was founded, yeah. on which Britain's status as a world power was founded. 
Everyone from the right to the left agreed that the city was non-negotiable. This was the centre. It didn't mean the British banks were the major players necessarily, as, as uh, Mervyn King famously remarked. It's a bit like Wimbledon, but it's still the preeminent tennis tournament of the world, even if Brits only very occasionally win, right? That is the key thing of the city. And to be in a situation where the interests of the city are put so fundamentally in play, have been fundamentally disregarded again and again in the course of, of the Brexit crisis, mm -hmm. really raises the question of what happened. And I think to understand that, you have to go back to 08. Both the Conservatives and by 08, New Labour as well, were fully all in with the City of London. It was the driver of modernity, of progress, of cosmopolitanism. It was a huge source of tax revenue. It was a great success story for Britain mm -hmm. as a business centre. And that breaks in 08. I think nowhere else really in the world is there such a catastrophic loss of legitimacy. Mm. Um, and Cut out of that comes a politics which is resentful, it's anti-London, it's anti-European, mm. and in the end it's disregarding of the interests of the City of London. Now you may say that's well deserved, but as a historian it's, it's a really remarkable development mm. that we should be in this situation. And again and again we thought in the course of Brexit negotiations the city would pull the plug, it would assert itself, it would show you know, where the power really lay, and it mm. just hasn't panned out like that. Mm. We're in a completely chaotic situation mm. where in the end it is parliamentary majorities. Uh, on they often decided on very thin on a thin uh, electoral basis that, that are going to decide this issue. Mm -hmm. So these days there's a lot of babble about populism, whether yeah. you're sitting in the US or sitting in Latin America or right here in London. You're not a fan of that term, and why is that? Simply because I think it, it, it is too baggy. It encompasses such an incredible spectrum of mm -hmm. different phenomena, from mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. to moments in which Elizabeth Warren is described as a populist. Yeah. Anyone less populist than you know this distinguished Harvard law professor is yeah. very difficult to yeah. imagine, except of course her policies of redistribution strike people as populist, right. so then she becomes a populist. Yes. You know, Trump's a populist, but so are Syriza in Greece, right? right. And to my mind, the, the one thing that that term really signifies is the discomfort of folks like us. It, what it really describes is that people who thought of themselves as centrist, as liberal, as right. middle of the road, as the people who knew how the system should work. What populism is, is the, is the sort of politics that we find difficult to deal with. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me like a very bad basis on which to classify. And it's pejorative. It's explicitly basically just saying, I find this really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give it this label. It's very difficult, I think, often to distinguish populism from just an authentic expression of a rather disorderly democracy. Mm -hmm. And since we're notionally committed to that political form, I think we, in a sense, need to get more comfortable with its many, many expressions. So we're 10 years on from Lehman's collapse. Do you think the global financial system is more resilient now? If you look at the banks alone, and if you look at the American banks, which were, despite my caveats about the transatlantic situation at the heart of the crisis, I don't think if you take the, you know, the Fed's financial stability report from last week, there's any reasonable doubt that the American banks per se are larger than ever and more stable. Yeah. They have much less reliance on wholesale money market funding. They have balance sheets which are much stronger than they've ever really been before. And JP Morgan and these kind of entities are to an unprecedented extent yeah. dominant. Same can't be said of European banks. Mm -hmm. um, the good news about the European banks is they're much smaller and they're much less systematically connected to the United States. Mm -hmm. But per se, on their face value, they remain a very serious worry. We have Deutsche Bank on the one hand, which even the German government was trying to find a solution for. Mm -hmm. We have the non-performing loan situation and we have the doom loop potential in mm -hmm. Italy where even relatively well-managed Italian banks uh, could find themselves torn into a crisis right. uh, as a result of the instability of sovereign debt and the failure of the Eurozone to break that 
break that loop, right? right? By means of what or other mechanism, either risk weighting sovereign debt and forcing a huge reallocation of portfolios, okay. or taking a huge slice of unsustainable okay. Italian debt off the balance sheet of the Italian state. Okay. There, were, there were two or three ways out of this right. crisis and out of this instability, and we are basically not moving down either any of those routes. That leaves it uh, very uncertain. The third element is Asia, and that's yeah. the new dynamic. And it's very okay. difficult, I think, to remember quite how rapid the shift has been. In 08, okay. you know, China was obviously a huge growth center, and it was a major exporter, and it was hosting the Olympics. But the sense that we have now that it's really the heart of global economic growth. That's relatively new. And of course, okay. we know how opaque China's situation mm -hmm. is, and we do know how enormous the leverage appears to be in the Chinese okay. corporate sector. Um, thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there. Copyright 2019, all rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.